This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. All this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and today I'm joined by two very special guests, Jessica Getman and Evan Ware, and they are two of the three editors of a new book about music in Star Trek. Nice to be here. Good to talk to you both finally. I think this is the first time we've actually uh, kind of spoken virtually in person, but we've met electronically because funnily enough, I was uh, I played a small part in the <laughs> in the gestation of your book because I ended up copy editing it. I used to do a lot of copy editing for Routledge, the academic publisher. And I still get these emails now and then that generally kind of go straight into my trash folder. But this one came through for a book about Star Trek and I was like, okay, I'm definitely doing that one. <laughs> uh, and I really enjoyed it. It was a fascinating book for me. Some of our listeners will know I am not musically trained I'm not uh, <laughs> I'm by no means an expert on this sort of thing but I love you know when other people bring their expertise to Star Trek and kind of are able to shine light on it in a, in a different way whether that's design or, or music or or whatever it was certainly great to have someone who knew Star Trek copy editing the book um, because you were able to bring up um, some very specific things about some very specific episodes uh, and uh, I remember thinking like wow this is this, this is like the royal treatment we're getting from Routledge here. Uh, so that was, it was very cool. I think that was more good luck, to be honest. I wouldn't expect that level of, of knowledge in future. Uh, like I say, I mean, when I handed it over at the end, I, I did say to them, look, you know, maybe for the proofread, you should find someone who reads music because I can kind of cope with one side of this, but the other is way uh, out of my field of expertise. But it's a fascinating subject, and it's one that I don't think has been covered all that much uh, in detail, certainly from an academic perspective. And we used to have a show on Trek FM called Melodic Treks that was very popular. um, And people loved that because we played a lot of Trek music and so on. But that was very much from a kind of fan's perspective, not from a kind of musicological perspective. But this book, I think, is is really interesting because you really go quite deep uh, into some, some of the kind of obvious topics and some pretty kind of out there topics as well. I'm kind of curious, what brought the three of you, because you you have another uh, co-editor as well who worked on the book with you, what brought the three of you together and what was it that made you decide that this was the book that you needed to to pull together? Yeah, well, our our other editor um, is Brooke McCorkle Okazaki, um, who is also just a wonderful musicologist. And gosh, we all met many years ago. we've kind of known each other a very long time as musicologists. It's a small world. More particularly, we've probably come together on this topic uh, connected to uh, presentations at uh, conventions, Um, specifically the Society um, for the Cinema and Media Studies and the Music and the Moving Image uh, Conference as well. So uh, that really brought us together. Although, I mean, I've known Evan for, gosh, 20 years now. Are we on 20 years now? Uh, it'll be 20 years in 2028. Oh, okay. <laughs> 15 years now. 
So, but as, as I recall, it was uh, it was actually James Deville's suggestion. Uh, really, we do this. We we're yeah, we we're at the 2016 uh, Society for Cinema and Media right. Studies conference in Atlanta, and we all did a panel with Michael. He was the only person. He was originally supposed to be a um, an editor with us, but he wasn't able to to make that work with his schedule. And we all presented on uh, on Star Trek there, and it was a lively it was a lively presentation. People enjoyed it, and I remember uh, James coming to us afterwards and saying, "Really, you should you should think of of uh, turning this into a book." And that's kind of where it all started. I was just going to say, you're right, Duncan. That there's there's not a whole lot of books on the music of Star Trek quite yet. There's a uh, Jeff Bond's. Um, uh, kind of his seminal music of Star Trek, uh, which is really, it's a kind of a quick overview of each of the um, uh, films and shows up into the 90s with some interviews with the composers, um, really useful book. But there's not a lot that's very specifically on the music of Star Trek. And so this was, it was an attempt um, to get a lot of this in print and out there for the rest of the world. Because as scholars, as musicologists, many of us are Trekkies. There are just so many of us who love uh, Star Trek and science fiction. And we're consistently giving papers to each other, you know, kind of going over these ideas with each other. But we really wanted to get some of that in print. So that's part of what we were doing here. Give our listeners a kind of a bit of a sense of, of some of the kind of topics that come up in the book. Because as I say, they're not necessarily the obvious ones. I mean, there are chapters about the various title themes about you know the influence of different composers these kind of topics that you mentioned but there are for example there was a chapter that I loved about uh Majel Barrett and Luxana Troy as a kind of a sonic disruptor I think maybe the, the the way she was described as this, this kind of particularly because she plays two characters she plays the Enterprise computer and then she plays Luxana Troy and in some scenes they're even talking to each other this sense of the kind of orality of the Star Trek universe. So I suppose taking music in quite a broad sense rather than a very literal sense. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, that was the the chapter by Josh Morrison. It was one of our favorites too. We were all very excited about that. Um, he's, a, a, he's a cinema studies, gender studies uh, uh, scholar. And um, yeah, he was definitely a great person to bring along um, uh, to kind of look at sound and um uh, in meaning in kind of a, from a different perspective than we would be equipped to as musicologists. So yeah, that was one of our favorites. That was a, an important part of this book from the beginning was that it should be about sound and music because sometimes the boundary between those two concepts is a little bit blurry. Jessica and I have presented a paper on that on that exact topic about in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, mm -hmm. where there's the, the scene where Chekhov and Terrell are on SETI Alpha 5 and you hear the beeping tricorder. Well, the beeping tricorder, that pitch actually organizes the pitches of the entire scene, right? So it's, mm -hmm. a, it's a part where James Horner and the sound editor were working really, really closely together. So there's this kind of porous boundary between what's what would be considered like a diegetic sound and a non-diegetic music that's accompanying it. So there is a lot of this uh, the the um, work I think in the book about looking at stuff that was die that was both diegetic because the idea the the idea of music in the Star Trek universe is really important. Jessica's 
uh, article touches on that with data data's violin playing but then so does uh sinatra in space one of my personal favorite articles i'm a sinatra scholar too so i was very excited when uh when tim summers um proposed that one and it's such a great uh it's such a great uh chapter about um about how music from the golden era of like the american songbook was used uh, as a as a kind of a repository for for healing and hope during the DS9 run, particularly during the Dominion War, and I just thought that was such a such a special way of looking at it because we tend I think we all tend to kind of default to thinking you know about those those uh, the fanfare when you hear Star Trek music right but there's so much music in Star Trek not just music about Star Trek yeah and it feels like to me I mean just this week we've had the uh premiere of season three of Picard and that's a show that seems to be leaning more into you know the kind of the songbook and so on it's kind of leaning into that I mean from the very first shot of the first season through to this episode there are like I think three or four samples of uh of music whether it's this kind of mixtape that Picard has made for Beverly or whether it's you know what he's listening to in his quarters and obviously we've had this throughout Star Trek and, and then Captain Shaw who's got Chopin playing uh at dinner and is very snooty about Riker's jazz collection there's it feels like the Star Trek universe I mean it's always been there but certainly I'd say in Picard it feels like maybe this is coming off Nemesis and the whole blue skies thing with Nemesis but that's being folded in much more and becoming more a part of the texture of it somehow. So I have to say, I haven't seen season three yet of Picard. Okay. So now I'm very excited, but I, <laughs> I mean, I, in the Those last- Those don't count as spoilers, I don't think. <laughs> no, <laughs> it just makes me more excited. Um, yeah. I, I do have to say, so like in Picard season one, um, the shot of the Borg cube with the Romulan theme, because it's, it's, mm. Sorry, everybody. Spoilers. Um, it's been. Uh, it's okay. I think we'll get it's away with under that. Under <laughs> control of the Romulans, right? So the mm. playing of the Romulan theme from the original series was really, really cool. Um, that was a moment of I think everyone who's familiar with the original series just went ding. Um, so that was pretty amazing. But I also have to say um, the short treks have been really great in that regard too. Specifically, Ephraim and Dot. I think. Oh, I love that one. Kind of a parody cartoon. Yeah, it was really, Mm. really good. Um, And uh, Lower Decks, too. Like, Mm. the callbacks, the musical callbacks have been... There's so many callbacks, of course, in Lower Decks, but the musical ones are the ones that I love. So um, that's been been really fun, and it's really nice that to have this sort of nostalgia, not just for uh, the characters and not just for even the feel, right. Which a lot of the the fans have been kind of wanting, you know, with strange new worlds and, uh, and Picard too, to a certain extent. Um, but the, the nostalgia for, for the music and the sound too has been, has been really nice. The fact that they've paid attention to that. Well, I think if you haven't seen season three yet of Picard, you're definitely going to enjoy it because there are a lot of, I mean, even for me as a non-musical person, there are musical callbacks that I was yeah. recognizing. I'm pretty sure there was a bit of insurrection in there. There's there's bits of music from all over uh, Star Trek. And in fact, in the end credits, because they, they moved the credits to the end. Uh, and as with all these new Trek series, they're filled with little clues and so on. And one of those clues is a, a line of, of music. Uh, which I have to say, you know, meant nothing to me, as you know, because <laughs> that's not that's not my skill set. But I've seen various people um, online who have, you know, 
whipped out their keyboards and played it. And it, it is indeed a significant piece of music that is going to kind of, in fact, be reprised in, because I've seen a few episodes ahead, uh, is going to be re- reprised on screen um, later. That is a spoiler, I suppose, but it's a pretty um, oblique one uh, <laughs> later on in the season. So, I mean, there's a kind of interesting example of, of the music is almost giving clues a bit like, I mean, I don't even know if this is true, but they always used to say that the music to Inspector Morse, I don't know if you guys ever watched Inspector Morse. So the theme for Inspector Morse plays on this kind of Morse code thing. And apparently if you understood Morse code, there were always clues. Like the theme was always slightly different for each episode and there were clues to the identity of the murderer or whatever put in there. So it it kind of interests me, this idea that, that you put clues in the music that maybe whether they work I guess for people who really understand music, they work on a conscious level. Maybe for other people, they work on a, a, a on an unconscious level. And I thought that was interesting because Jessica, you wrote uh, an essay in the book about AI characters, and I was quite struck by what you were saying about the difference in the way that data and law were scored, and that as a kind of indication of you know there's something uh, dodgy about law. You know, even before we've kind of totally come to recognise that. That's the great thing. I'm going to get a little meta here, but that's the great thing about music and narrative, I think, as a whole, is that music does, uh, it gives us information that maybe we don't cognizant, we aren't cognizant of Mm. what exactly we're being told, but we still take it in. So yeah, with with the data and the lore music, you know, even the fact that data's music was it was meant to be something that was meant to be heard as computational um, because it, it was drawing on this idea of like serialism, even though it wasn't quite serial, but it, it was drawing on this idea of serialism in the 12 tone row, right? That sort of thing. Um, even the idea of uh, the original series with Spock's brain, right? Which I think I also talked about in, in this chapter, like the, the fugue, right? That Jerry Freed wrote for, for Spock's brain, right? This, this music that's meant to kind of tell us that, hey, you know, here's something about this character you need to know. Um, and that's really common in television and film. And most of the time when we're listening, we're not really listening, right? For that kind of stuff. Um, but it certainly makes our lives a lot of fun as music theorists and musicologists, just in terms of there's always something to dig into because the composer's even if uh, they know that the listeners aren't always going to pick up everything, um, that kind of meaning is there. For any of your listeners who aren't familiar with the term, right? fugue is when you have uh, multiple different voices coming in with a similar melody. Bach wrote a lot of these things, right? So you might have a melody that starts up and it, it runs for a few seconds. And then another melody starts up in the same way and it runs for a few seconds. And then a third melody and sometimes a fourth melody. And if you're Mozart, you can do eight um, because... Mozart. Uh, but uh, so the, the idea of the fugue was called was known, in fact, as the learned style as far back as the 18th century. And so it had a connotation, even even in the 18th century Europe, of being uh, music that people who knew what they were doing would write. Right. So it had a kind of an intellectuality about it. Uh, and Bach, when he died, like everyone thought he was like a weird fuddy-duddy who was still writing fugues. No one does that anymore. Uh, and so to to use that for Spock makes a lot of sense. Uh, right. Spock, Spock and Bach. I mean, it rhymes. Uh, but, they, uh, you know, they the, there's a certain kind of meticulousness, a certain kind of, uh, you know, that kind of 
the uh, people often talk about box music in, in terms of logic, uh, right? Look at how these voices fit logically together and things like that. So there's, there's a, like a really long tradition of this. And that taps into something called topic theory in music, which are kind of how tropes get used, musical tropes get used over and over again in similar contexts. And I think that's part of the reason maybe why Star Trek music in Star Trek took a long time to, to come around is because it took a long time for those theories to come in to musicology and music theory to be accepted because musicology and music theory tend to be behind the times by about 25 to 30 years. Uh, and it's true. Like I'm not, I'm not trying to, to be facetious, uh, but you know, critical theory comes into the English departments in the seventies uh, and it's not really hitting music departments until the turn of the century. So there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of delay in music. Uh, it tends to be a conservative discipline. Uh, so it's taken a while, I think, for people to, A, to, to have the tools to be able to study this kind of music, but also to have, to think that this music is worth studying at all. Yeah, television music studies is really a newer discipline, you know, at this point, maybe it's 15 to 20 years old. Um, but that's still really young in terms of um, uh, fields. And I, I do want to, Evan, can I go back to um, the idea of topic theory? And mm -hmm. um, I think in particular, just this idea of the few kind of being this sort of uh, musical topic. So again, it's this kind of musical reference to an, an outside idea, right? Um, so this musical topic um, that, and it was something that Jerry Freed was really, really good at. Also, Fred, I mean, they all were very good at it. Fred Steiner was really good at it. Um, but one of the things I really appreciated about Jerry Freed is that he was very purposeful in um, the the music that he composed, um, so in this case, he he wrote Spock's Fugue for Spock's Spring, and um, it was this this reference to to you know the the learned style, right? This this refer reference towards logic, but he also when he wrote a muck time, um, the music for a muck time, the uh, the famous five music. That everyone knows, right? Da, 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 da. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, he was yeah. <laughs> he was pulling from um the primitivistic style of Stravinsky, right? Mm -hmm. Like he knew that he was he was tapping into that musical um topic or that musical style that could be applied to the topic of of primitivism, right? In order to create that specific type of music and create a specific sort of feel, and that was something. Um, you know, most composers are going to be doing this, especially in film and television, because it relies so heavily on musical topic. But um, uh, that was something I really liked about Jerry Freed is that, uh, you know, he he didn't he didn't write the most music for the original series of Star Trek. That's definitely Fred Steiner. But um, he I think his music is the music that people remember the most, you know, barring, you know, the title cue by Sandy Courage. Mm. So. I think because he was just really effective with that. It's fun to see what Jeff Russo is doing now because it's a very different world, yeah. right? The, the, um, yeah. when the when the next generation composers came in, Berman had like some really strong 
aesthetic leanings, right? The music should be kind of like tapestry behind uh, the actors. It was never supposed to be as dramatic as it was in the original series. And in fact, like they they really push back against the original series in a lot of ways. It starts to break out. Like by the time Deep Space Nine comes around, there's that episode where they find a planet that only shows up every 80 odd years and Dax falls in love with someone. And the love theme in that episode is just delicious. Uh, like one of the one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard in Star Trek. So they do start a and yeah, in a terrible episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, they do start great work. <laughs> yep, yeah. they they do start asserting themselves. But Jeff Russo really takes it to another level, right. and I kind of feel like the the um, I don't know this for sure, but I feel mm. like. Uh, Kurtzman at all have been really like hands off with him have been just like you do you and uh, and let him really kind of tell a story I think you know for my money the Picard theme from the first season was one of the best title cues ever written for Star Trek it is mm. impressive and again a callback insofar as it reprises the the inner light music mm-hmm. but in in a very subtle way I mean I you know, not to labour the point, but like, like this is not my wheelhouse. But I didn't even realise that until someone pointed it out to me. So it was obviously subtle enough that as someone who you know uh, watched the Inner Light plenty of times and heard that music, and even been to like the Star Trek in concert and heard the whole suite for it and so on, uh, that that didn't register for me. But it did. It did feel very appropriate that theme. But I mean that the, the music obviously has changed massively over the. 50 odd years. I mean, you were talking about musicology changing and catching up with the times. I mean, Star Trek has also been kind of catching up with the times, whether it's, uh, you know, when it came back with Discovery, it seemed to me there was this kind of Game of Thronesy style, which I struggled with a bit because I I know, Evan, you wrote a really interesting chapter, basically, (laughs) it seemed to be basically about why we hate the Enterprise theme so much, which I think most people do, but it's quite interesting to kind of go into why that is like what it how it offends on so many levels um but again maybe that was kind of of its time and the and the discovery music feels very much like it's of its time and the tos music i assume was of its time but they're very different um i mean gerald freed you mentioned who i think died just this this week just this past week right years ago yeah yeah i mean really massively influential and maybe more so because in that era you did, because they reused those musical cues. It's not just in one episode, albeit a great iconic episode, but it comes up again and again. And that obviously is something that I suppose, I don't know, I always feel going back to TOS and, and m- much more so as well, going back to the animated series where they, they only seem to have about three or four cues and they reuse them like several times in every episode. It, I don't know, it sort of feels like it sort of draws attention to itself more because you, recognize it do you know what i mean and you get that a little bit with themes like you mentioned the romulan theme in season one of picard uh i don't know if this is a spoiler we're going to get the klingon theme which i do recognize longtime track fan uh in season three of picard you know probably for obvious reasons um there are these little kind of almost like a bell ringing or something we, we had it in season one of picard with seven and nine when she first appeared we get a bit of the voyager theme i mean i don't i'd be interested to know what you guys feel about this from a kind of, you know, musicology uh, perspective. As a fan, I sometimes feel like those moments actually take me out of it a little bit. Uh, if they're too, if it's too much of a kind of, I was going to say a dog whistle. I mean, that has all kinds of connotations that I'm not really going for, but, but it is that kind of element, isn't it? If it's like, 
we'll do this little thing and it will really get your attention somehow. I think the word you're looking for is fan service. Yeah. And obviously there wasn't much of that at all in that kind of Berman era hmm. where, like you say, it was meant to be the wallpaper and you didn't really notice it. Now, I guess now, and maybe this is what you were saying, Evan, about Jeff Russo having more freedom and the other composers having more freedom to draw attention to the music a little bit more. So there's certainly an art to it. I think you're right. Like when those little like musical Easter eggs pop up, mm. meant to be noticed, right? Yeah. And so Russo has to be careful, right? And I'm sure he's doing this in conjunction with the directors and the producers, right? There's Kurtzman, et cetera. But there are moments, right, where the music, they can do something that with like that with the music to highlight something, right? But then they have to, you know, be careful because they it can get in the way. And I mean, that that really goes for any sort of film or television, right? Like, for the most part, the music isn't meant to be consciously heard, right? It's something that's supposed to, like, lead our emotions, lead our um, the, the way that we feel about the characters on the screen, how we interpret things, right? And so you're not supposed to be, like, actually listening to it. But when you get a little Easter egg like that, that's when they want you to notice, right? <laughs> And then it, it actually, it disappears quite quickly, right? Because the narrative moves on fairly quickly. I mean, then there's also, you know, what they've been doing with the different series in terms of creating something that is uh, very progressive and in line with um, kind of progressive science fiction and progressive Star Trek, which, you know, originally Star Trek was pretty darn progressive. Um, and, but then also at the same time producing uh, Star Trek that is also very nostalgic, Right. There has been this tension in, you know, since Discovery started, you know, between uh, new Trek and old Trek. Right. Um, but I don't know, Evan, if you have thoughts that you want to add on the. Yeah, I do. Uh, so in my in my chapter, I talk a little bit about the, the text as kind of being a starship. Right. So if you want to think of the text as a sort of a hermetically sealed starship, a bubble of livable space going around in the vacuum every time. You go in and out, commercial break, or uh, into the show and out at the final credits, you're going through an airlock that takes you in and out of the ship. And uh, every time you make a reference to another series, then, or what we might call a paratext, uh, well, sorry, an intertext, so then you're creating kind of an airlock link to another ship that you're going to for a short time. Every time you open that <clears throat> airlock, there's a chance that you might lose some pressure. And I think that's the problem, right? If you keep opening and shutting the airlock, eventually you're going to run out of air. Uh, and, um, that's one of the reasons that I think that, that, um, that, uh, you know, the faith of the heart fails as a, as a Star Trek theme is because it just didn't allow fans to get into, to get into the mindset of what would they expected Star Trek to be. And then when you got into the show, you never heard that song in the underscore ever right it was never a part it's not like it was not like firefly where the the theme song essentially was also the generative of the material that you you heard in the underscore that whole thing had a sound design from the top from the from the 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 title track all the way down to the most minor cue you could think of right it all had that sound I, uh, but, but that was not the case with, uh, with enterprise. And I think that's one of the main reasons it failed, but if you're constantly referring to something else, then you end up, I think you end up with, uh, with kind of a weaker atmosphere. Uh, and I think, you know, particularly, I think 
where I, I thought um, Star Wars went wrong with this was in uh, the the standalone. What was it? The where they steal the plans to the Death Star? I forget the Rogue One. Rogue One. That's right. <laughs> uh, um, so Rogue One was like just full of fan service callbacks, and at a point, it's just like wow, like this is just you know, it just feels like they're like people are adding icing to the cake all the time, and it feels manipulative rather than sincere. And I think fans can sense that pretty readily. Although then you get lower decks that very specifically like is, is parody right at every level. And so that kind of reference is expected and is just part of tapestry. Also though, I would say fans experience seems to vary. I mean, I'm maybe a bit more allergic to the most obvious kind of fan service though. I feel like there's so much of it these days I've sort of had to make my peace with it. I mean, uh, you, you know, just talking about season three of Picard, um, generally speaking, the reviews have been incredibly positive compared to the first two seasons. And I actually quite liked a lot of season one. I had massive problems with season two. But uh, for me, I thought it was a, a, not just a return to form, but a, a return to a form that was never quite there so far. But there are still quite a lot of Easter eggs and quite a lot of these little, you know, nudge, nudge, uh, nuggety moments and I would prefer there were fewer of those but I've sort of just got to the point where I kind of shrug my shoulders and think okay that seems to be what it means to do Star Trek these days and uh, though I think Evan's right it, you know it does I think that that analogy of the airlock is a really good one it, it does take you out of the story that you're supposed to be in I think that's really interesting about Enterprise I mean I hadn't really thought about it in that sense but yeah I, I suppose that's true that it, it exists in a different world from the show more so than than the other series themes and the fact that they have another theme at the end of the show uh which fits perfectly with the rest of the music and which lots of people were saying well why isn't this just the theme of the show this is a perfectly good star trek theme uh i thought that one, one of the things i thought was really interesting in your chapter as well is how you break down the kind of different constituent elements of all those 90s trek themes and also how they kind of um come through into the modern themes with the different kind of parts. There's the space part, there's the, the fanfare part. Maybe you could just talk a little bit about that because I think that that's quite an interesting um, point of consistency between those those series in, you know, the kind of Trek era that I certainly grew up in in the 90s. And I think it's interesting how they turn some of those things on their head now and rebranded and sort of there are musical elements that are part of this whole Star Trek branding. Now, you know, every show now uses the same font for the Star Trek part of the of the uh, logo. Every show uh, uses the same little uh, musical motif, the, the kind of Star Trek-y stuff that goes back to the original series in a way that wasn't the case in the 90s. And yet there were other kind of maybe less obvious forms of um, connective tissue between those shows. Yeah, well, I think so there's four basic elements to any Star Trek title queue. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship, whatever. It's continuing miss uh, mission to seek out new uh, worlds and new civilizations to boldly go where no one has gone before, right? So those that you can use that model to kind of break down what the, mu the music should illustrate all four of those things in some way, shape, or form. So in the original series, Space, the final frontier, right? Beam, bum. Um, um, that's right out of the beginning of Mahler's first symphony, which is supposed to be this bucolic, open, uh, open, um, natural setting. 
you can also find analogs of that in um, the opening of Dances with Wolves, right? Over the Great Plains. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll find that. You also find it in um, Aaron Copeland, Billy the Kid, same thing. Uh, so this is right? a kind so of wagon a, train I'm, element there. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, the, yeah. This is the wagon train to the stars. That's where that's coming can from. I, that's interesting. I want to insert there too. So that that has a long history in American music. So Neil Lerner talked about this. He mm-hmm. studied uh, Virgil Thompson and Aaron Copeland, and he identified this as like music of wide open spaces, right? Mm-hmm. They use the fourths, which are slightly larger um, intervals, Right. So uh, chords that are based on fourths instead of thirds to kind of create this openness. Um, And he then identified that as being key in the Star Trek title cue and and part of what Mm. uh, is is called in the original series, the space theme. So when you stack fourths together, what happens is you get a sound. I'll play it on the piano here. A lot of the fourth sounds were sounds that you had in Star Trek The Next Generation as the backdrop because they're non-committal. They're not tonal sounds. They don't sound like chords. They don't have major or minor. You don't have a sense tonally of where you are. And so you can actually have all the notes of the major scale playing at the same time, but it it doesn't sound like a major scale. It doesn't sound happy or optimistic or triumphant or anything like that. It just sounds kind of ambiguous. Uh, and um, that that ambiguity is space. And then as the the starship comes into focus, uh, the what happens is that all of the musical materials tend to reorganize themselves into a more traditional tonal uh, setting where the the relationships between the harmonies are familiar to viewers, whether or not they know, you know, whether or not a viewer has the music theory to describe them, we're all expert listeners in our culture by about age six. Because right, that's at the moment you've listened to over ten thousand hours of music, uh, wow. so you know what the expectations are, right? Like they, they, when people tell me they're not experts in music, I always laugh. Uh, everybody's a music expert; you just don't know it. Uh, so the you, you're listening and you're processing all of this stuff, uh, and so the so then so then everything reorganizes, and it usually reorganizes into something that is um, very upbeat, right? Like it's a march uh, in the case of Star Trek: The Next Generation. Uh, it's a begin in the case of the original series. Uh, it's a Deep Space Nine is a little bit weird um, in that in that respect, but uh, but it's, it's got it's got some sort of you know um, motoric. Uh, so when people complained about the the kind of the games the Game of Throny aspects of uh, Discovery, I thought that was a weird it was a weird criticism because there's so much motoric uh, music going on in all of the other series. There's just kind of a weird way that we don't remember the that about there's this this sense of in the b section of all of these themes there's this sense of travel right so that Mm -hmm. was the thing with the begin right um especially it's got this sort of forward momentum right in the original series and you get that in the b section of all of these other these cues yeah goldsmith in in voyager for instance goldsmith Which is the same chord progression, the same exact chord progression as the very first two chords from uh, from Star Trek: The Motion Picture, right? Puts you in this moment of like, oh, we're traveling to weird, distant worlds, but none of them are that threatening, and they're actually kind of familiar, right? So it's it, it's never the point is never that the travel is somewhere that's that's really truly strange and new. It's always like strange-ish, new-ish, maybe new adjacent. Uh, right. You know, it's the new it's the new alien of the week with a different crease in their forehead. Uh, so there's um, 
there's there, there's something about it and then the expectation that it's going to come back uh and that everything's going to be okay which it obviously does right and so the voyages and then you boldly go where where no one has gone before right? and that's all the kind of the triumphalism and these big climaxes these big sort of orchestral symphonic climaxes that you get i think of the trumpet solo in um in voyager is a classic example it's like one of the highest pitches ever written in a trumpet solo in star trek uh it's a it's a that's a hard lick to play by the way <laughs> you, gotta, you gotta be able ready to hit that thing. I'm a trumpet player, so I know. Uh, but the anyway, the so so there's there's all this kind of ideology that that is packed into to that. And then then think about what um what uh what happens when you when you deal with um when you deal with where my heart will take me, which does absolutely none of those things and gives you kind of a, a soft rock. I mean, we can argue till the cows come home about whether it's a good song or not. Uh, I think I'm I'm like team Stockholm syndrome at this point. Uh but I but the you know it it just doesn't do what it should and then the the discovery theme reorders things and people were pissed off about that. I mean they were expecting something to happen in a certain order and it didn't happen mm. in a certain order. And that I think made, made a lot of people feel that the fanfare when it came in was insincere. Mm. That's really interesting. Yeah. I, I think it's partly, like I say, for me, when the fanfare comes in at the end, it feels a bit like this branding exercise rather than an introduction to this world somehow. And I don't know, I'm sure that's not the intention, but it, it does feel, and, and, you know, now they've got this bit at the beginning with the ship whizzing around the kind of Delta logo, which is quite cool. And I, I like the way they animate it and so on, but it, it feels of a piece with this whole way of packaging Star Trek now as this kind of, I don't know, I suppose it is this kind of new Trek thing. And it's like, this is Star Trek. It's successful now. It's all connected. It's uh, maybe it's a kind of post MCU thing as well of trying to like say this is all part of one thing, which is weird because then at the same time they're making these shows which are extremely different from each other, much more so than was ever the case before. Like you know, in the nineties, I mean, yeah, DS Nine was doing stuff that the other shows wouldn't do in, and doing some quite groundbreaking stuff, but they were still a lot more similar uh, than a lot of the shows we're getting now are to each other so th th then with, with these themes i mean the other thing obviously with the enterprise theme is then they changed it and i mean i don't know what you think to my mind they made it even worse when they kind of upped the tempo uh but it's interesting you know so ds9 they had a kind of they redid their theme i don't know I, I think there's a kind of implication when you change the theme that it's like a soft reboot maybe a very soft reboot but there is an element of kind of soft reboot of the show picard they've completely changed the theme twice now so each season of picard does feel like a different show and it has a completely not completely different but like the first two have quite seriously different themes the third one has a totally i won't spoil it for you uh, <laughs> and it's a familiar one that is more normal nowadays to to update the theme every year to kind of update really? the yeah. show yeah yeah there's some other shows that do that as well um you guys are going to be so mad at me, but I loved the Enterprise theme. <laughs> oh, my God. Totally, I know you're going to just think I'm terrible. I thought it was just really yeah. interesting because to me, it was a commentary. So going back to this um, this soft rock or this kind of um, country rock feel was a, a statement on kind of like the, the everyman approach. Like this was this was the Enterprise at the very beginning, right? This was the the entrepreneurs that kind of 
made it happen. And they're just now putting their foot out into the great unknown, right? Like, so that's, for me, I was like, okay, what they're trying to connect to is that, that sort of, um, uh, for better or worse, trying to connect to that everyman feeling. And then it didn't work out for reasons that I think Evan is completely correct about. <laughs> like, I understand why people didn't like it. But for me, I was like, oh, I get what they're trying to do. Like, it made sense. Um, There's this kind of folksy. Yeah. I mean, are yeah. we meant to think this is what's going on in Archer's head? It fits with his it. personality somehow. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. Well, yeah. I mean, and I think they had, they. I think Russo... With with the discovery theme, I think what he was trying to depict was what they were doing with the visuals, really, which this idea of like, because this is proto, like, this is between Enterprise and the original series. This is like all of the threads are coming together slowly, right? Mm. So they were presenting different parts of the motifs from start that we would associate with Star Trek, but in little parts. And then at the end, it comes together into the 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 type the fanfare right and so for me I was seeing that sort of like uh, that building right the building of that fanfare. However, I think I think what Evan's talking about the fact that that's not what fans were expecting, right? So it doesn't quite work the way even if they had like an intention, it didn't quite work the way they meant. I think it would have worked better if they if they'd gone with it if they committed to it right if that had been if that had somehow been in the underscore as well because I mean if you look at who was doing the underscore it was exactly the same people who'd been working on Voyager mm -hmm. uh, so they you know for all the for all the talk you know, if you read the the um, uh, the twenty five year missions like the you know those the kind of oral histories of Star Trek they all talk about how they needed something new at that point Berman and Braga were exhausted and they wanted to do something completely different well how different was it if they wanted to do something different what they probably should have done is stepped aside no offense to them uh but they they had you know i think that was their vision you know and it and it and, and if they if you still have the same people doing the same thing you know whether you change the in a, in a sense it's like a misfire right it's a it's a miscue it says yes we're going to do something different but then you get into the show and you realize wow it's actually not all that different to begin with right mm -hmm. uh, it's still the same kind of underscore it's still the same kind of stories i mean i actually think the the writing in in enterprise was some of the best writing that happened in the 90s and it happened in the 2000s uh but you know it was really i thought that some of those shows were extremely good um, and really compelling just the the entrance music the entrance music was I, mean, I don't hate it either I guess I, I don't I don't take myself as a fan too seriously uh, and I think if you think about it if fans had the amount of power they have today back when the next generation started the next generation wouldn't have lasted a year right some shows need time to mature and I remember mm. watching because it was on TV I was a kid and I remember watching it and being like yeah and then picking it up again in season three well no kidding yeah right yeah the borg uh and then suddenly it was amazing and it, it just needed to find it just needed to find its way but we're not we're not patient anymore with that kind of stuff people were already throwing discovery under the bus after one episode mm -hmm. and it seems to me that that's i mean i didn't like picard season one and so i've been sort of reticent to go to season two because i've heard that it's worse <laughs> um and uh, skip to season like, three though because but i mean that's the sad thing is you know this is like three and done so it's again it's a show that finds its feet in season three but that's all you get so you know uh yeah and enterprise you know only got four seasons and by the time it got to season four people would have happily watched 
a few more of them. <laughs> it's just that the kind of nails were in the coffin by then, I guess. One of the things that I thought was interesting in your book as well is you've got a forward by Jay Chatterway, who obviously scored a load of those 90s series. I think possibly more, did he write more music for track than anyone else? He's got to be up there anyway. He's like one of the, the, the top scorers. And he was definitely one of those kind of points of consistency. He was one of the kind of wallpaper composers, if you know what I mean, after Ron Jones was given the boot for doing too much kind of weird, quirky stuff. But it was interesting. He talks in that preface about the opportunities when he did get to uh, write music that draws attention to itself a little bit more, like, for example, the Reskin flute music. And also he mentioned, say, A Fistful of Datas, which is an episode I love, uh, and obviously has all the kind of Western music in there, uh, Alman Bashir. You know, these kind of holodeck shows where suddenly, so it's it's not the diegetic music. I mean, there, there may be some of that. I can't even remember if I feel like in, in my head, A Fistful of Datas has some kind of honky-tonk piano going on in there. I don't know whether it really does or not. But I suppose it's because the music is kind of signaling as kind of genre shift or a kind of pastiche it's allowed to draw attention to itself. And even in um, Bada Bing, Bada Bang, I think you get, don't you get there the DS9 theme repurposed? Am I imagining this? You know, in the, in the kind of, in the way, like in the original series, you hear the original series theme as a bit of like background music at a party at one point, don't you? Maybe I'm wrong. I, 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 they, I, my memory is that they kind of rework DS9 music in the style of that era uh, so that's not to say that the characters can necessarily hear it, but it kind of is bridging that gap somehow or kind of questioning that distinction. Yeah, does the same in uh, in the, the ones where Picard is the detective. Thing, Dixon Hill. Thing, right? Dixon Hill. And then there's the, the Royale, one of my favorite early episodes, mm. Star Trek The Next Generation. Just hearing that's such a weird one. Daddy <laughs> needs a new pair of shoes is like one of my favorite lines. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I think that's one of the great things about the holodeck, though, is it allows mm. the show to kind of have a show within a show and make that genre shift, right? Kind of, mm. it, it can make a, it's kind of like a steam, uh, steam release, right? Um, you can go into that and have your own little kind of parody or even some very serious shows, um, but it kind of lets them explore something very, very different. I know some people really dislike the um, the Johnny Rocket um, takeoff. Oh, the uh, Captain Proton from Voyager. But <laughs> for me, those are great moments because they're kind of like standalone. They're kind of they're they're just kind of their their own little bottle episodes, right? But they really allow for that kind of creativity. I mean, this happens at a lot of television. They did it in the original series too. Um, you know, with their Western shows or their comedy, you know, the triple show, you know, that sort of thing that allowed them to kind of step away and do something different. It's also an interesting, I think it, it, it interestingly tracks onto postmodernism as a philosophical um, paradigm that people had in the 90s, for instance, where it's like all things kind of exist simultaneously, which obviously is, you know, as a result of high fidelity recording and, um, you know, people living longer lifespans. And so there's sort of more overlap between the generations. And uh, I remember when I was, you know, in the nineties, we were all swing dancing. Uh, that was a, you know, that was a big thing. And that, that wakes, works its way into Star Trek as well. Uh, and it's interesting, you know, as a, as we talked about in the book, Star Trek is always sort of taking the temperature of where we're at. And I think you see a lot less of that in the new uh in the new shows maybe more in in like the the funny ones uh like the um 
uh, like lower decks or something. But I think of, I think of Voyager, or not Voyager, I mean Discovery. Uh, you know, Discovery is a very serious score. It may refer mm-hmm. to other Trek scores, but it's not it's not doing a lot of like, oh, here now is a jazz number, and now we're going to do a you know a, sort of a scene setting thing. That that's not the interesting. That's not the interest there. The interest is to connect it to the the rest of the franchise and to make something sort of organic and coherent. And I'm kind of curious what that means about our culture. You know, because Star, Star Trek is so good at being like right on the cusp of like, where are our anxieties? What are we really worried about? Well, Star Trek in a way right now is kind of on the cusp of where we are socially and politically because it's got so many different shows out. So it's basically it's touching on all of these different sort of like um you can think of them like social political needs or social political ideologies or ways of looking at the world, right? Because discovery is very different from strange new worlds. Like strange new worlds was written as a response to the Mm. fans who loved captain Pike because it was going back to the optimism of old Trek. Right. But discovery is really expressing this sort of, um, you know, the world is gray, Uh, it's not black and white. You can't have a leader who is fully good. Like everyone is flawed, right? Which is also part of what's going on in our society, especially in the 21st century, you know, the last couple of decades, right? And so there's- And everyone is traumatized. Yeah, and everyone's traumatized. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So so there's this, and then you've got, you know, Prodigy, which is, to be fair, I've only seen part of the first season, so I can't really comment fully on that. But then you've got uh, Lower Decks, right, which is kind of letting out sort of the, uh, it, it again is a steam valve, right, that's kind of like letting out the the humor that we need to let out, right? So I feel like instead of one show that's that's kind of carrying the social and political issues of the day, they've got these multiple vehicles that are addressing different perspectives or different needs even really. Um, which I think is really fascinating. And it happens in the music too, right? Because you're going to get more of the old Trek scoring in Strange New Worlds, right? This this sense of mm. like using musical topic or specific themes that are associated with specific characters that you got in the original series, um, as opposed to, you know, Discovery, which is much more serious score, like Evan was saying, as opposed to, you know, Lower Decks, which is uh, in many ways, it's not always parodying, um, but it, you know, it it has many moments of, of parody or reference, right? So, yeah, that's, I don't know, that's what popped into my head when you guys were talking about that. I think um, Star Trek is really fascinating, like most science fiction, right? Because science fiction is commenting on who we are as a society and who we want to be, right? And And I think and Star Trek has always been a part of that. And whether you see a certain series as progressive or not, it's a part of that. And then right now we just have like this sort of plethora of Star Trek that's really kind of maybe showing how all of our different, you know, our needs and our perspectives, you know. I think that's such a great point because it also reminds us that Star Trek is a creature of the commercial market yeah. uh, and that's something that yeah. i think we all tend to forget because it has such a beautiful message and it's a message that appeals to many of us for its kind of egalitarian vision of a utopic future um but it's still a product of our present uh, mm-hmm. and that as a product of our present it has to appeal to as many different markets as as possible and the reality of now is that there aren't monolithic markets anymore you're all sort of going for niches all over the place so it makes sense to have a property that has 
different extensions in different ways. And I'm sure as Simon Frith would remind us uh, that music, you know, music and social identity are, are so closely intertwined that you're going to tailor that music to the social identity that you're targeting. It would be, it would surprise me um, none at all to know that they had exactly in mind who each show was aimed at. I guess that's the thing is there's two audiences for each of these shows. So presumably the way they think about it is there's, so, you know, Prodigy gets the kids, uh, I don't know, like the Section 31 show, if it ever happens, gets the the sort of gritty, like whatever, like 18 to 25 dark <laughs> young people, maybe. I don't know. I mean, like, but at the same time, then there's also the audience of Star Trek fans who traditionally were the, I mean, I know like Next Generation broke out and became a mainstream hit, but like a lot of Star Trek has kind of relied on not pissing off enough fans that they don't turn out. And then that's when it gets, that's when it goes off the air. Do you know what I mean? When you lose the fans. And maybe that's why there's so much nostalgia because there is this kind of, I mean, maybe this fan service comes out of a kind of anxiety. I don't, I don't know. And I just, I feel like it, sometimes it works. I mean, I really loved Strange New Worlds. I loved the show and I loved and of all the track shows, it's the one I was least looking forward to because I felt it was totally superfluous. But actually, I think they did a really good job on it. And I also think on the music, I liked the compromise where they kind of gave you the TOS theme, but then they did something else as well. And that seemed like that seemed to represent the show. Whereas in the instances where they just, so like end of season one of Discovery, they just gave you the TOS theme. Uh, that feels cheap to me. And, and everyone loved it. And everyone was like, wow, it's the Enterprise. Wow, it's, you know, it's TOS thing. Like, well, you know, that's not, I don't know. <laughs> that didn't impress they me. They gave us the TOS <laughs> you know what I mean? because of the Enterprise though, right? Yeah. No, okay. I know. I know. All but right. it's like, but it, but it's almost like, it is almost this kind of thing of saying, yeah, this was a dark season. We know you found it a bit tough. Uh, like in the last 10 seconds, here's, Thanks for a, a, sticking so, here's, yeah, here's, here's something that will just kind of cheer you up and then some music that makes you feel like it's all okay. Uh, and we haven't you know really like ruined Star Trek or whatever it is they thought people were worried about. I don't know. It, it, feel, it feels kind of cheap. For me, it was it was actually explained why the, the uh, fanfare showed up in the, in the title queue. The whole season, I was okay. like, why, why was the fanfare there? And then at the end of the season, I was like, oh, now that makes sense. Uh, So for me, it actually kind of links something that I thought was maybe sort of maybe slightly cynical branding Mm. uh, to to something that was to to something that 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 sort of made more sense. So actually, for me, it was more like, oh, yeah, okay, I I get this now, but I can understand. I definitely understand your point of view, why you would why you might feel sort of suspicious about it. uh, Well, I guess the whole the whole thing about music in in TV and film is that it's on the one hand, we want it to be kind of authentic somehow, but on the other hand, we're aware it's there to manipulate us, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? I mean, insofar as like film in general is trying to manipulate us, the music is a massive part of that, uh, of kind of tugging on the right strings on the audience to kind of get the reaction you want. Telling us what we should think of a certain character or certain character's Mm -hmm. actions. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. And I would just say that was like, that was the whole point of Reba's chapter where it's like, you know, here's this beautiful utopia, but actually the music's telling you something quite different about it. You know, I mean, it is, it is, um, it is strange. And it's, I, I keep, you know, in my head, I keep coming back to the score for Star Trek, the motion picture, which I consider to be probably the best movie score, one of the greatest mm. movie scores of all time. 
Sure. Uh, I think of that movie as a symphony, which just happens to have a Star Trek movie playing at the same time. <laughs> I, the, um, but that's also an exercise in nostalgia. It's, I mean, it's it's sort of Januaryan, right? It's it's looking forward because it has that whole new theme, but at the same time, there's this like really long, long scene where they approach and go around the Enterprise and look at it from all angles, and I mean, you don't miss a speck of that starship by the time you board, right? Um, but that that's also like the, a deeply nostalgic moment. And you think about how people might have been feeling at the time, feel people who never thought they'd ever see Star Trek again. Uh, you know, that that's pretty powerful. And I think that that's that's evergreen in Star Trek because, you know, Kurtzman himself even talks about how it goes through these cycles of cancellation and then revisioning and then rebooting and and that that cycle happens in his view roughly every 10 years. Um, and 10 years is a ginormous amount of time when you think of musical codes and what's popular and what's not popular. 10 years is a long time. On the other hand, Discovery came out in 2017, right? So, I mean, 10 years will come around sooner than we think, <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, I don't know what's their... I sort of assumed they have a longer-term plan this time around. They seem so... They, they always seem to be planning so far ahead. Um, I don't know. I guess we'll... We'll, we'll we'll see and we'll see where you know i mean as much as there seems to be all this looking back and all this nostalgia and so on whether in the shows or the music we're constantly getting new star trek shows i mean picard's going to be off the air soon there's going to be a spot opened i don't know if michelle Yeoh wins an oscar i don't know whether that section 31 is ever uh probably they can't afford her anymore <laughs> but um you know there's going to be there's going to be something, isn't there? You, you know, they, there's there's going to be Star Trek Janeway. There's going to be a Seven of Nine show. Whatever they decide to do, they're going to find a way to keep, you know, kind of making sausage. One of the things that fans have consistently been saying they wanted, and they still haven't got really, they were sort of starting to get it with Picard, was, you know, we want the continuation of that story, we <laughs> of that kind of, of the Star Trek story, you know, whether it's in the... 23rd century, 24th century, you, you, you know, that, that kind of continuity. We don't want the jump necessarily to where discovery is way in the distant future. We want to know what happens in the early 25th century. Now, okay, we're going to get a bit of that with Picard. Surely after that, they can do a new show that doesn't rely, at least doesn't rely so much on pre-existing characters. Maybe they have one or two. I don't know, like DS9 had, you know, had a, a little bit of a link like that. And then maybe we get something it does feel a little bit more new in that sense. And it'll be interesting to see musically what that, what they take forward into that, you know, um, if they have to develop a, a theme that is not in any way referencing something else. So, you know, probably it will be one way or another. Well, they're always What's creating that? these themes that don't reference others. It's just, we're not going to notice those as much because that nostalgia isn't like there. Right. So, right. Mm. um, Sometimes those themes, they stick out to us as being fantastic. And those are the ones kind of like the fight theme from the original series. Right. And yeah, no, I agree. I am so looking forward to like the thing I love about Star Trek is that it, it's forward thinking. Right. Mm -hmm. And right now, I think maybe our society is we are in a nostalgic move in our society right now. Like the. Um, yeah you know, Stranger Things and like all of these, these shows that are kind of looking back to the eighties and the nineties, especially right now. And, and that's just kind of where we are kind of in our entertainment right now. Um, yeah. So I'm totally looking forward to, you know, Star Trek breaking, continuing to break new ground. 
both in terms of narrative and story and in music. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to the two of you. And as I say, it's a really fascinating book. Um, Do you want to just let our listeners know where they can... I don't know, can they get hold of a copy or, or, or read it in the library or what's the best way for them to access these, these really interesting uh, essays? Well, it's definitely available in some libraries, but uh, if you want to buy your own, it's actually not too expensive as a paperback. Easiest place is Amazon, but um, it's you can also look at Taylor and Francis online and uh, you can buy it there as well, just directly from the publisher. You're blended all right.